Good morning again. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to Matthew 16, we'll be looking there this morning. If you want to put a finger in Matthew 18, we'll be looking there as well. So we spent some time over the last couple weeks um, looking at the doctrine of God. Um, We looked at some of the attributes of God. We, We studied what God's Word has to say about theology proper is the technical term, the doctrine of God. And uh, we have one week this week, Andrew will be preaching next week, and then we'll be back in the Gospel of John following that, Lord willing. But we wanted to take time this morning to not talk about the doctrine of God, but rather the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of the church, which is typically called ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And in our day, there's a lot of questions about the church. What is a church? What does a church do? Is the church even necessary in our day? There's a lot of confusion about what a church is. Is it a social club? Is it just a religious institution that was merely invented by men? There's a lot of confusion about what a church does, what a church is to do and be about. What is its purpose? What is its function? And maybe most pointedly, how is a church to function? How is it to govern and rule itself when Christ, its king, is not bodily present, right? Christ has ascended into heaven. How is the church to function and govern itself? And I think that sadly, just as with anything in our lives, if we don't understand what it is and we don't understand what it does, it becomes disposable, right? We no longer have a use for it. Think of those thousands of kitchen appliances. Maybe you have some at your home. Maybe you got some for Christmas. You're like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what it does. And eventually, I'm seeing Daryl give Tina a look there. I don't know what that means. (laughs) Right? We all have these things that are sitting around, and when we don't know what they are or what they do, they become disposable. They become We see no longer a use for them, and I think, sadly, this has become the case for the church. People don't know what the church is. People don't know what it is the church is to be doing, and so, sadly, the church, in many ways, and to our world, becomes disposable. And so, I pray this morning that this will be a timely word for us this morning, and what we're going to see today is that God's Word, Scripture, not only tells us what a church is, but it tells us what a church is to be doing, what a church does, its purpose, its function, and ultimately its absolute necessity for the life of the Christian. That the church, we can say, is the visible kingdom of Christ in this age. The people of Christ, under the rule of Christ, gathered together under word and under the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And because this is what a church is... Christ, as King, has commissioned His church. He has given His church both power and authority, not only to preach and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all those who put their faith in Christ, but He's also commissioned His church to preach and proclaim the law, the just penalty for sin and the wrath of God that remains on all those who remain in their sin and do not come to faith in Christ. 
And our main point this morning that we're going to see is that as we look to Scripture and as we see what all of the New Testament has to say about this, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus Christ has given His church, each individual church, made up of both officers and members, the keys of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ has given His church the keys of the kingdom. Both power and authority, not in and of themselves, but received and derived from Christ to both open the kingdom of heaven in the public proclamation of the the gospel and to close the kingdom of heaven in the practice of church discipline, right? Receiving in all those who put their faith in Christ, but also shutting out all those who will not repent of their sin. And that's what we're going to see in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 this morning, that even though Christ is bodily absent from His church, He is at the right hand of the Father, He is very much spiritually present with His church, and He's given His church in His bodily absence everything it needs. Everything it needs to do what He has commanded His church to do. All necessary power to do what He has called His church to do, not only in regards to worship, but also in preaching and in discipline. And so far from the church being unnecessary or optional or even disposable in the life of the Christian, what we're going to see today is that the local church is the primary means that God has ordained and instituted for the gathering, for the protecting, and for the preserving of His people. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word. I'm going to begin in chapter 16. I'll read uh, 13 through 19 to give us context, and then I'll jump over to Matthew 18. This is the Word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Turn with me to Matthew 18. Jesus continues at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, 
If two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's pray one more time this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. And we pray this morning, Lord, that as we um, come to hear your word this morning, that we would hear it for what it truly is. Not the mere words or writings of men, but the word of God that you have spoken to us, that you have breathed out, that we might hear and understand the way and plan of salvation that you have planned for us. And we pray this morning, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would strengthen and equip us to hear and receive your word and that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of Christ and of his church this morning. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Now, there's a lot of questions that arise, maybe even as we're reading those passages, right? What are the keys of the kingdom? Who possesses these keys of the kingdom? What is this language of binding and loosing, right? Is it reference to, um, in the charismatic church, it's used a lot to talk about binding spirits and loosing spirits. Is that, is that what Jesus is talking about here? What do all of these questions and these verses mean? But I think before we can get into answering some of these questions, we need to first answer a more basic question, which we've already alluded to this morning, and that is, what is the church? What is the church? And that will be our first point this morning, our first question, what is the church? We see in both Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus makes reference to the church. He says in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church. In Matthew 18, 17, he says, if anyone refuses to listen to their brother and repent of their sin, Jesus says to tell it to the church. These are actually the only two times this word is used in the Gospels. But what is the church? What is Jesus referring to when he speaks about the church? You might know that the Greek word used here is ekklesia. It means assembly or gathered and called out ones. And as we see in verse 16, Simon Peter here had just declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus tells him that this has not been revealed to him by flesh or by blood, but by his Father who is in heaven. And we see in verse 18 that Jesus now declares to Peter that he and his profession of faith will be the rock upon which Christ will build his church. But what's interesting to think about is that at the time when Jesus said this to Peter, there was no what we might call visible church, right? There was no visible church. Besides the 12 apostles who sort of pictured the fullness of the new covenant church, there was no visible assembly of which to speak of, right? You couldn't go down the road to covenant reformed Baptist church when Jesus said these words. So what is he referring to when he speaks about the church? Well, we can say in one sense that Jesus here is speaking about the future. He's speaking about the coming day when through Peter and his profession of faith, Christ will build his church, the new covenant 
people of God. Not only because Peter is the first one in the book of Acts to preach and proclaim this message on the day of Pentecost, but because it is upon this profession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, that the church of God will be built. It is upon this profession that the church of God will be built. That contrary to popular opinion, the church is not a social social institution that is created by men. It is not a group of people gathered under a celebrity pastor, nor is it a voluntary association of people with common interests and preferences. No, rather what we see in Scripture is that the church is created and instituted not by men, but by God. It is of divine origin. It is the people of Christ under the rule of Christ. It is the covenant community of born-again believers, of blood-bought saints who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The church is the kingdom of Christ on the earth, the visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom in this age. Now, with respect to the church, our confession speaks about it in two different senses, in both the invisible sense of the church and the visible sense of the church. What do I mean? We see in chapter 26 of our confession, paragraph 1, our confession talks about what it calls the universal or Catholic church, the invisible church. This is the church viewed from God's perspective. It is all those in all ages that have put their faith in Christ. This is the elect people of God, chosen by God, and will be redeemed by Christ. But it also speaks about what we might call the visible church. This is the church from man's perspective. It is all those gathered together in local churches professing the faith of the gospel. But we need to be clear, this is not two different churches, but rather the church considered from two different perspectives. From God's infallible perspective, He knows who are His, and from man's fallible perspective. We cannot see the hearts or intentions of man. And so we speak about the church invisible and the church visible. But the church absolutely considered is rather God's work of new creation. It is instituted and ordained by Christ and by His covenant. It is gathered together and sustained by Christ and His Spirit. It is protected and preserved by Christ and by His grace. And ultimately, it is governed and ruled by Christ and by His Word. And so this has implications for how we think about what we call the visible church. That therefore, the visible church is to be made up of those who have been saved by Christ, who have been redeemed by Christ, who have publicly professed their faith in Christ and are seeking to walk in obedience to Christ and in His commands. Right? There's no perfect church. There's no perfectly pure church. But the goal is that all churches would be made up of those who have been saved and publicly professed their faith in Christ. This is what a church is, and this is who is to make up a visible local church of Christ. But that leads us to the next question, which is, what is a church to do? What does a church do? And 
what we're really trying to put our finger on this morning is what is a church to do specifically in light of Christ's bodily absence on the earth? If Christ is not physically on the earth, how does he gather his people and sustain them? Right? How does Christ gather his people and how does he sustain them? How does Christ govern and rule his church even though he is bodily absent from them? Why can we as believers have confidence that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it? Why can we be sure of that? How can we know? And the answer is because Christ has given his church the keys of the kingdom. Christ has given his church the keys of the kingdom. And that leads us to our second point this morning, and we'll basically have two subpoints to this. Our second point, or our second question this morning is, what are the keys of the kingdom? <laughs> what are the keys of the kingdom? And we all already saw the answer to this in our, our um, confession of faith this morning. It is the preaching of the gospel and the practice of church discipline. And we see, as we've already said, that the Lord Jesus Christ has given his church made up of both officers and members, the keys of the kingdom. He's given them power and authority to open the kingdom of heaven in the proclamation of the gospel and to close the kingdom of heaven in the practice of church discipline. This is what we see referenced in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, that even though Christ is bodily absent, he has promised to be present with his church. He's given his church everything it needs to do, everything that he has commanded it to do. And as Reformed Baptists and as Congregationalists, we believe that Christ has not given the keys to the Pope, this would make you a Roman Catholic, nor has Christ given the keys to the regional bishop, this would make you Episcopalian, nor has he given the keys to the elders of the church, this would make you Presbyterian. But rather, Christ, we say, has given the keys to the church, made up of both officers and members. Christ has given the keys to the church, made up of both officers and members. And the first key that we're going to look at this morning is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. The first key of the kingdom that Christ has given to his church is the preaching of the gospel. We see in places like Matthew 28, where after Christ's resurrection and right before his ascension into heaven, he gives the church his great commission, and with it the power and authority to preach and proclaim the gospel to all nations, to the ends of the earth. This is what Landon is seeking to do, right? Is to preach and proclaim the gospel to all nations. Preaching repentance and faith in Christ as the only means of salvation and proclaiming the forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all those who put their faith in Christ. But what we see in Matthew 28 is this is not in place of Christ's authority or seeking to usurp his authority, but rather it's because of Christ's authority that the church is commissioned to do this. We read in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. <laughs> Upon his resurrection, 
and his um, work as the second and last Adam, he can say, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. But then what does he tell his disciples? Therefore, go. Therefore, go. Because I have been given this authority, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It is because of Christ's authority that the people are able to go and do this work of making disciples. Christ has commissioned his church to preach and proclaim the gospel. Or we could use the language of our passage this morning, Matthew 16, 19. He's called them to open the kingdom of heaven. That might sound like very strange language. We don't speak that way very very frequently, but what we're really saying is that what Christ has commissioned his church to do is to preach and proclaim the gospel, to open the kingdom of heaven, that the riches that Christ has purchased might rain down on unworthy sinners. This is the public declaring and proclamation, the free offer of the gospel, that because of what Christ has done in his life, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, that by believing in the gospel by true faith, God will truly forgive sins and and give the gift of eternal life. And so it is by this means that we can speak about the kingdom of heaven being opened, that all those who put their faith in Christ, who believe in the promises of the gospel, who repent of their sins, we can say that heaven is open to them. They've been given the gift of eternal life, just as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, Quoting the prophet Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the free offer of the gospel. This is the opening of the kingdom of heaven. But it's here that we need to see the connection between the preaching of the gospel and the local church. How do these things fit together? And what we see is that if a sinner hears the gospel proclaimed and repents of their sin, professes their faith in Christ in the waters of baptism, that they are to be welcomed into the church of Christ. They are to receive membership into the local church, the visible kingdom of Christ that we've spoken about. This is the use of the keys of the kingdom, the opening of the kingdom of heaven, that those who put their faith in Christ might be welcomed in. Notice in our passage, as well as in the rest of the New Testament, the keys are not given to the world. The keys are not given to the civil government. The keys are not even given to the elders, but rather to the church, made up of both officers and members. We could say it like this. The church has been given power and authority, delegated ultimately by Christ to open the kingdom of heaven, by preaching the gospel, receiving professing believers into membership, and by affirming their profession of faith. The church does not make someone a believer. It is the work of God alone, through the Spirit of God alone, empowered by the Word of God alone, that makes someone a believer. Rather, the church affirms that as far as they can discern, a genuine work of God has been wrought in this person's heart. 
right? And as a church, in this last year, we had the privilege of seeing two people welcomed into membership in our church, both Adam and Shelby, right? They heard the gospel proclaimed. They, they desired to be baptized. They were interviewed by the elders of the church. They were um, brought before the congregation. The congregation heard their testimony, heard and was given time to, to look into those things. And then the church ultimately voted and welcomed them in to membership upon their baptism. Right? This, is, this is the keys of the kingdom being exercised by Christ church. This is the keys of the officers and the members working together, concurring to agree together and opening what we call the kingdom of heaven to those that would put their faith in Christ. But that leads us to our second sub-point this morning, that just as Christ has given his church power to open the kingdom of heaven, so we see in our passage that Christ has given his church authority to also close the kingdom. And that leads us to our second subpoint: the practice of church discipline. The practice of church discipline. That the second key Christ has given his church is the authority to close the kingdom of heaven in the practice of church discipline. That just as Christ has given his church power and authority to open the kingdom of Christ in the preaching of the gospel, so also Christ has given his church power and authority to close the kingdom of Christ in the practice of church discipline. We see this in our passage in Matthew 18. We also see this in places like 1 Corinthians 5. That in the same way, the church is to receive into its membership all those with a credible profession of faith, so also is the church to remove from its membership all those who are living in unrepentant sin, who in doctrine or life find themselves contrary to Christ. And we see this in our passage in Matthew 18. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Right? We see the same language from Matthew 16, this idea of the keys of the kingdom, but instead of the kingdom being opened, we see the kingdom being shut in the context of church discipline. Now, maybe you've never thought about this passage in this way, but what Jesus is doing here is not only laying out a model for how to handle sin amongst brothers and sisters in general, but rather he is showing how to deal with sin in the context of the local church. And we see this evidence by the first couple words. Jesus says, if your brother sins, against you. The assumption is that this person is a fellow professing believer. 1 Corinthians 5, 12, Paul tells the Corinthians not to judge outsiders. God is going to judge the world, but rather the church is to judge those who are inside the church. And so the assumption is that this is happening amongst professing believers in the context of the local church. 
And so what we're saying here is that if a member of a local church, if a professing believer does not repent of their sin, either living an unchristian life or professing unchristian teaching and doctrine, after repeated and loving counsel, even refusing to listen to the admonition of the church, Jesus would call us and command us to remove them from the membership of the church, keeping them from the Lord's Supper, even treating them as a Gentile and an unbeliever, shutting them out from amongst the congregation in the act of excommunication, removing them from the visible kingdom of Christ by the exercise of the keys of the kingdom. But as we said before, this key is given to the church. It's given to both the officers and the members. The church has been given power and authority, not absolutely, but delegated by Christ to close the kingdom of heaven in the practice of church discipline by removing the unrepentant from its membership and disaffirming their profession of faith by the vote of the congregation. Church discipline does not make someone an unbeliever, but rather church discipline declares that as far as we can discern, this person has not been born again. They are no longer, we are no longer able to receive them as a brother or sister in Christ. And we see right away that this is a very serious and weighty thing. It is not something to be taken lightly, just as we don't take the preaching of the gospel lightly, so we also must not take this practice of church discipline lightly. But we see that it is commanded in Scripture, and it must be done to vindicate the honor of Christ and of His church. Sin is a very serious thing, brothers and sisters. We must take sin seriously because sin separates us from God. Our sin is what ultimately put Christ on the cross. Our sin has alienated us from God and is deserving of His just wrath and curse. This is what sin is. And so we see that those who remain in their sin have no place in the new covenant kingdom of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As we read this morning in 1 John chapter 3, John says, Let no one deceive you. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now, as Daryl helpfully said this morning, don't we all sin, (laughs) right? Doesn't this passage describe all of us? But the question is not, do we fall into sin, but do we make a practice of sin, right? Do we make a practice of sin? I think this is why both Paul and John say, do not be deceived, As one pastor said, it's not so much about the presence of sin, we all sin, but about the absence of repentance. It's not so much about the presence of sin, but the absence of repentance. We all sin. Every single one of us in this room, we all sin. But true believers, by the help of the Spirit, repent of their sin 
They are broken over their sin. True believers not only have the gift of faith, but repentance unto life. And so the church must separate from those who remain unrepentant, not only for the good of the offender, but for the good of the church and the good of our witness to the world. And so several takeaways as we look at Matthew 18 here specifically, we see that church discipline is always congregational. Church discipline is always congregational. It's never a decision made by a select few. It's never done in a back room and quietly amongst the leadership. It is always congregational. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4, that it is to be done when the whole church is assembled, when the church is assembled together. If after private and repeated admonition, it is only then that it is to be brought before the congregation. As Jesus said, tell it to the church. But the second takeaway we need to see is that church discipline is always aimed at restoration. Church discipline is always aimed at restoration. That even though church discipline and excommunication is the most grave and the most solemn censure the church can exercise, it is always aimed at restoring the wayward sinner. It is never vengeful, but loving. It is never punitive or retributive, but rather restorative. The person is to be removed from membership that their repentance might be restored. They are, as Paul says, delivered over to Satan, over to the kingdom of this world, that they might be saved in the day of the Lord. All the time, the people of God are to be praying that this means might be what brings them true godly repentance, that they return to Christ and communion with his church. This is why Paul will say in the book of 2 Corinthians that the man who was disciplined for his act of sin and unrepentance is ultimately, Paul tells them, to forgive and comfort this brother who has repented. That if all of heaven rejoices when a sinner repents, how much more should the people of God rejoice when a sinner comes to their repentance? And so, as a church, the aim is always for restoration and to forgive the the wayward sinner. And so we see that these are the keys that Christ has given his church, the preaching of the gospel and the practice of church discipline. But that leads us to our third and final consideration this morning, which is why is this necessary? Why is any of this necessary? Why does the church matter? Why do the keys of the kingdom matter? Why is any of this significant? If God is sovereign over all of this, what's the point? But we see that the truth is, God has not only ordained the end of the salvation of his people, but he has also ordained the very means. And so we come now to the necessity of Christ's church. We see in Scripture that the local church is the primary and ordinary means Christ has ordained for the gathering, for the protecting, and for preserving of his people. The local church is the primary and ordinary means. There's no plan B. You don't need to look for something outside or above and beyond the local church. The local church is the primary and ordinary means Christ has ordained for gathering, protecting, and preserving his people. The local church is where the people of God are gathered. 
called out of the world, out of the kingdom of Satan, out of the kingdom of darkness, and welcomed into the kingdom of Christ. The church is where the people of God are protected, kept from the snares of the devil, and shepherded by qualified pastors, regularly partaking of the means of grace. The church is where the people of God are preserved and kept, weakly hearing their need to believe the gospel and repent of their sin, and lovingly admonished when they fall into temptation. As we said, the church is instituted and ordained by Christ. It's gathered and sustained by Christ. It's protected and preserved by Christ. And it's ultimately ruled and governed by Christ and Christ alone. As one person said, all authority in the church is and remains Christ. We are but servants by whom Christ exercises his heavenly authority right? The the authority is Christ, but he has delegated and given this to his church. And so we see in our passage that Christ has promised to be present with his church. Even though he bodily ascended, we know that he is not absent from his people for a moment. And if you want to look with me at Matthew 18, verse 20, this famous passage Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is not talking about small group studies or coffee shop prayer groups, but it's the promise of Christ's continual presence with his church. So much that we can say with the second Helvetic confession that the faithful preaching of the word is indeed the word of God. It is Christ himself preaching to us. What did we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 this morning? It says, And He, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you. Paul is talking to the Ephesians there. And you're saying, what's the big deal? Christ came and preached peace to them. Jesus never went to Ephesus. He never set foot in that city. But yet Paul can say that in the preaching of the word, it is actually Christ that came and preached to them. That even though Jesus never went to Ephesus, Paul can say that it is Christ himself who has preached to you. This is the promise of the presence of Christ with his church. And in the same way, the faithful practice of church discipline is Christ himself disciplining his people, using the means that he has instituted to preserve and rule his people. As one pastor said, when we gather in Christ's name, For the purpose of worship or discipline, Christ has promised to be present. Such that when the church preaches the gospel or pronounces judgment and discipline in a manner consistent with God's word, Christ is present to affirm and uphold it. That even though he is bodily absent, he is spiritually present with his church. Christ alone is head over his people, the church and king over them all. And so we see that Christ has ordained the church for our good. He has given us everything we need. And we should not neglect this means that God has given us. It's a great gift that God has given his people in the local church. And so as we step away from this passage this morning, by way of application, there's three things that we need to see this morning. The first one we need to see And it's so central to um, what we believe, 
especially as Reformed Christians, is that we need to see the marks of a true church. The marks of a true church. That historically there have been three marks for a true church. The right preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and the right practice of church discipline. And we see that we've referenced two out of those three this morning. That all of these three must be present for a true church to be seen. Not a pure church, not a perfect church, but a true church that's seeking to be faithful to God's Word. The church must preach the true gospel, the law and the gospel, eternal punishment for all those that remain in their sin, and eternal life for all those who put their faith in Christ. The church must properly administer the sacraments, vetting those who Profess, want to profess their faith in baptism and fencing the table of the Lord in the practice of communion. And we see thirdly and finally, the church must faithfully practice church discipline, even though it's hard, even though it's burdensome for the people of God. We must do this to honor the name of Christ and seek to be faithful to His Word. And so when we see when all three of these things are present, we start to see the beauty and glory of a true church. This should give us, brothers and sisters, a high and reverent view of the local church. But the second thing we need to see is our dependence upon God. Our dependence upon God. We must utterly depend upon God to give the gifts that only He can give. We must depend upon God to give the gifts that only He can give. Because what we see in Scripture is not only has God given us the gift of His church, but we're reminded that the gifts of this kingdom, the new kingdom in Christ, are not of this world, but are heavenly, in origin, divine, gracious gifts bestowed by Christ. Faith and repentance are gifts of God. They're not from men. They're not brought about by men. They don't come from the power of men, but from the power of God. And that as the church preaches the gospel, we must remember that we are totally reliant on God to do what only He can do in His sovereign grace. Right? To give the gift of faith to those that hear the gospel. It's not by our words. It's not by our eloquence but it's by the power of God. What did Jesus say to Peter in chapter 16, verse 17? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but rather my Father who is in heaven. This should humble us as Christians, right? As one person said, we are but beggars telling other beggars where they can receive the bread of life, the heavenly manna that comes from God. So this teaches us to rely on God in the preaching of the gospel. But we must also, as a church, in the practice of church discipline, remember that true godly repentance can only come from God. True sorrow from sin cannot come from this world. Genuine brokenness over offending God cannot be conjured up by man. Repentance itself is a gift of God. Repentance unto life only comes by the work of the Spirit, revealing to the one the manifold evil of their sin and by faith humbling them with godly sorrow over it. And we can even think about this at the individual level, right? 
right? These gifts of faith and repentance. Every time we choose to do that which is pleasing to God, it is not of ourselves, but it's of the Spirit of God. Every time we confess our sin and repent of it, turning to Christ in the Gospel, it is not us at work, but it is the work of the Spirit of God in us. Every time we confess our sin to our kids, if we sin against them, or, or maybe our spouse, it is the work of the Spirit in us. Every time we turn from the secret and habitual sins in our life, it is the Spirit of Christ working in us. It is ultimately because the work of God's Spirit that we are given the gifts of faith and repentance. And that even though faith is invisible, you can't see faith. Just like the wind, you can see its effects. And true faith produces love for Christ and the Gospel, softness of heart and brokenness over sin, a desire to follow God's law, and ultimately, the fruit of the Spirit and trust in Christ. And so we must rely and depend upon God to do this work that only He can do. But thirdly and finally, we need to see the comfort that only Christ's church can provide. The comfort that only Christ's church can provide. That Christ has not left us to ourselves. He has richly provided for us and given us the great gift of his church. And we see that it's so important that we see this this morning, brothers and sisters, that we never mature beyond the local church. We never mature beyond the nurture of the lo local church. We don't graduate from Christ's church, if we could put it like that. No Christian can sustain himself as a self-feeder. We cannot be our own pastors, but rather in membership in a local church God has richly provided for us. God and Christ have commanded us to submit ourselves to the preaching, teaching, and oversight of those under-shepherds that He has placed in His care over us. Ultimately, under Christ, the true shepherd and head of His church. And so what we get in membership is spiritual nourishment through the Word of God proclaimed each and every Lord's Day. Spiritual nourishment through baptism and the Lord's Supper and spiritual nourishment through accountability and discipline. Christ has done all of this for our good. He has given these things for our good. And all of these things happen only in the local church. This is the means that Christ has instituted. This is a great gift that God has given His people. And I think for many of us this morning, it's good to remember this, especially in our times of weakness or suffering. Maybe some of you are struggling with your faith, struggling with your assurance, maybe struggling in your walk with the Lord. And we can be comforted and encouraged as we come to the local church and as we are a part of the local church. Sam Renahan said this, It should be a great comfort and encouragement to professing believers when the gathered local church affirms their profession of faith and welcomes them in to membership. This is the church exercising the keys of the kingdom. It is a statement and affirmation that according to biblical criteria and human judgment, such an individual is a child of God, a member of the covenant, and an heir of the promised eternal inheritance. Right When the church welcomes in a member, when the church affirms your profession of faith, 
you have an encouragement, you have a comfort, that even though maybe internally you feel like, I'm not a very good Christian, I fail repeatedly, Christ has given His church to both affirm our profession of faith and also to provide accountability and comfort in times of sorrow. We will all fall into sin, but our brothers and sisters in the church are there to graciously and lovingly point us to Christ, calling us to turn from our sin and run to Him. Christ alone is the head and shepherd over His church. He has bought us with His blood. He has given us His Spirit, seeking out and saving that which was lost. And we have the great promise in our passage this morning that even the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. He will guide and defend His people And as we've said before, sustaining them to the end, preserving and keeping his people, he will not lose any that the Father has given to him because the church's foundation is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll close with some verses from the hymn that we'll sing in a couple minutes, The Church's One Foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died the church shall never perish her dear lord to defend to guide sustain and cherish is with her to the end though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pair pale against both foe and traitor she ever shall prevail christ is the foundation of his church he will sustain his church and he will bring his church to glory let's pray this morning heavenly father we thank you for your grace and mercy to us we thank you for the gift that you have given us in the church lord we pray that as we pray this morning, we would not despise this gift, but that we would um, cherish it, that we would um, have great comfort this morning, that you have not left us to ourselves to wander as lonely sheep, but you have gathered us together by your word and spirit into your church, and we have provided for us richly everything that we need. You've given us your word. You've given us your covenant. You've given us your promises and your grace and salvation. And we pray this morning, Lord, that as we seek to be a faithful, true church, preaching the gospel, administering the ordinances faithfully, and even practicing church discipline if necessary, we pray, Lord, that you would sustain us as we seek to be faithful to your word and do that which is according to your will. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us for this that you would um, open the eyes of our hearts to see the importance of your church, and that as we come together now at the supper, that you would remind us that you are present with us, gathering us together, sustaining us, and preserving us to the end. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.